This is OTR-FM, part of the IOM Radio Network. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome. Joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books that inspired her the most on her life journey is the internationally renowned astrologer, Pam Gregory, who stumbled across astrology over four decades ago when she immigrated to Canada after university. Pam's passion for the subject took her through eight years of intensive study at the highly respected Faculty of Astrological Studies, where she earned her diploma before going on to achieve the highest honours in her master's course. If you're not familiar with Pam's work, she's the author of two best-selling books, You Don't Really Believe in Astrology, Do You?, and How to Co-Create Using the Secret Language of the Universe. And she's also the host of a really busy YouTube channel, which regularly receives hundreds of thousands of views. She's also the creator of a popular monthly newsletter that provides detailed, retrospective evidence of the accuracy of her monthly predictions. Pam, welcome. I'm so happy to have you with us. Thank you, Sandy. A joy to be with you. Very much looking forward to our conversation. Me too. And I know that many other people are as well. I've been hearing from lots of people that they didn't want to miss this for anything. So um, tell us about you and books, what they mean to you, um, and how you found the process of having to whittle your faves down to just 10. Yeah, that was an interesting journey in itself, actually. That took me on quite a deep dive. And it's quite interesting that the the books I sent to you, I didn't realise until today when I was thinking about this interview, they've actually formed a process of thinking and development for me, which is I just didn't realise when I was putting the list together. But as I mentioned just before we we came on live, um, I wanted to sneak an 11th one in or a first one in, if you like, because... When I was seven, I used to go to the local library and uh, I remember getting a book out called, it was something very simple called Time. I can't remember the author, it was decades ago, but it was the naughtiest thing I ever did. I just never took the book back to the library. I must have read it 40 times. And anybody who knows their astrology knows at the age of seven, you have your first Saturn square, which is connected to time, linear time, chronological time. And I was just kind of obsessed about what is time? And these are quite kind of big, deep thoughts for a, a you know, little girl at the age of seven. But I still have those thoughts you know, decades later. I haven't entirely solved that problem because 
um, as many of you will know, when you're you're working as an astrologer, you, getting the precise birth time is absolutely vital to get the whole chart working well. If the birth time isn't right, nothing is right. Wrong information in, wrong information out. So the, the linear chronological birth time to the minute, ideally, is what is required. And yet we know that beyond 3D, there, there is no time. Certainly in 5D, there's no time. So what does that mean for astrology? Does that mean that astrology disintegrates when we go beyond 3D and I can retire happily? <laughs> um, you know, what does that mean? So, so that question is still kind of rolling around my head all these decades later, but the concept of time and also the concept of what is our reality and how do we form our reality they have been huge questions in my quest through astrology, actually. Yeah, me too. You know, do you still have that book? No, sadly. I, you know, changed country, moved house lots of times. So somehow it got lost along. I wish I did because it was it was so well written and so, you know, deeply scientifically evidenced as well um, for what it was saying. So maybe, maybe it's just as well. Clear just it imagine the library finds. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be in very big trouble, wouldn't I? You would indeed. You would indeed. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, and I wonder too, on other planets, if we're born on another planet, do they have astrology? There's never anyone to ask that no. we know of, but maybe no. that will happen soon. And of course, they would have different qualities of time. It wouldn't be clock time as we know it. So, you know, this starts to kind of fall out of your ears. This starts to get into very big questions of yeah. the nature, not only of, of our Earth, but of, of the entire galaxy and, and beyond to other galaxies. I mean, these are really good and very big questions. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating ones. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about your list. And I'll tell you something about your list that I noticed straight away. There's not one astrology book in there. That's true, actually. Yeah, yeah. How strange is that? I tried to avoid them because I thought they're not necessarily of, you know, for general consumption, because often they're so technical and it'd be a bit kind of dazzling for people. But actually, the books I've chosen are the paradigm shifting ones, I think. Absolutely. Um, that's another thing. Every single one of those books is is a landmark book. It really, you know, is a game changer. And yeah. it's interesting tracking them through time. You know, yeah. first this one and then that one and then that one. And anybody who likes to have their perceptions shifted, you can track the books that did. Yeah, and that's that. what I felt today looking back through them, because that's the not necessarily the order in which they were written, but the order in which I came across them and read them myself. Mm. And and so that was my development process, if you like. So I, uh, I always smile when I find somebody's list echoes, you know, my own lists. I, I can't I can't do 10. I just can't. So I don't want anyone ever to ask me to do it. Um, you know, mine's more like a, you know, a thousand, I would think. But um, some of the classics, the ones that really pushed me, you're number one, just, um, you know, an amazing book, legendary, uh, groundbreaking about the supernatural. And of course, it's Supernature by Lyle Watson, published in 1973. And I was a teenager. I was a teenager when I read that, and I still think back now, and it just blew, blew fuses in my mind, really, because it was one of a, it was the very first one of its kind in terms of being groundbreaking and paradigm shifting, because it was really 
looking at the interconnectedness of the universe. And that's something that I wrote about a lot in my first book. And it was really blending science with the supernatural. And he was the first brave man to do that. He grew up in South Africa, I believe, as anthropologist, biologist, mm -hmm. zoologist, spent a lot of time in the bush. And he, his whole thesis is around this scientific connection of, of the universe and science and spirit, paranormal and supernatural um, uh, manifestations. So, and even if you think of the circadian rhythm, how, how connected we are, how interconnected we are with the rhythms of the sun and moon that I now work with on, that's my bread and butter on an everyday basis. You know, that was way before I discovered astrology, years before. And that still, that hit me so hard as a book. And again, I read it and read it and read it because he was really, I think in that book asking, what is the biological basis of consciousness? Yeah. Um, and what, what defines reality? And yeah. he also, I, I believe, came up with the expression of the hundredth monkey effect. Um, and that was a real thing, wasn't it? That somewhere in Indonesia, mm. um, because the lorries used to dump kind of loads of, of sweet potatoes for the, for the monkeys. And one kind of super smart Mensa monkey learned how to wash her sweet potatoes in the sea. And monkeys on other islands who had yeah. no obvious communication by telephone or post from those monkeys started to do the same. So that was really the beginning of Rupert Sheldrick. Exactly. Yes. Morphogenic field. Yeah. That yeah. spawned all that, you know, and that really is about collective consciousness, isn't it? Of monkeys. Mm. Yeah. You know? And that that follows through every single book. You know, that concept follows through every single book on your list. I it think. does. And yeah. I didn't realise yeah. that till today. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. I think it was in Supernature that I read something that absolutely astonished me. It was a story about somebody, it, it was about sound and vibration and frequency and how there was a, a man who, um, I don't know if he was an artist, but he used to get a headache in an attic room. And he didn't know why he kept getting this headache. And then he listened and he could hear this subtle noise. And he got the idea that somehow vibration could affect his brain. And he started doing experiments with um, sound. And uh, somebody unfortunately died um, because he was using sound. And nowadays they use it as weapons, mm. you know, as a weapon. So yeah. um, that just blew me away when I read that, you know, that sound could, could kill somebody. And, um, and also heal them. And, also, and, and heal. also heal them. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't in the book, but in later books, yeah. Mm. So, so that was a wonderful book. And that really sort of kicked off this this huge search for what is our reality? How do we f define reality? How do we form our reality consciously? And that's mm. really, I was, I, was, I was a teenager. That was sort of A-level time for me. Um, so yeah, extraordinary. So that was the beginning of the journey, I think, really. Mm. Yeah. Well, number two, um, another groundbreaking book, this time in the field of new biology had a similar effect on the public as supernature and that of course is uh, Bruce Lipton's Biology of Belief another book that blew my mind too that yeah. one was published in 2005 and again you know as you say 
Sandy, absolutely, you know, groundbreaking paradigm shifting, because I believe he was the professor of genetics at Wisconsin University. So he was, he was teaching genetics um, within the university. And he had this kind of epiphany, <laughs> really staring at a petri dish, because he used to work with cells in petri dishes. And what he wanted to discover was what determined the health of the cells. And the old thinking was, it is your genes that determine the health of your cells. This is passed down through your family. You are a victim to your genes. There's absolutely nothing you can do to change them. If cancer runs in your family, you know, you, you have a probability of, of developing cancer. And he had this epiphany and he, he developed the term epigenetics, which means above genetics, as you know, that it was not the genes themselves, the, but the perception of the environment that created the health of the cell. And that was just, you know, wow, fireworks going off for him. And he was really excommunicated from his community. He'd try and lecture on epigenetics. People would just walk out of the lecture theater. But yet it was a, it was a real shift to the spiritual because, and he's got some wonderful titles in the book, like Lessons from the Petri Dish. And you know, the magical membrane, because he discovered it, as you know, that it was the membrane that almost acts like as a com like a computer chip. Yeah. That it depends on the perception of our experiences. You know, it, it this kind of links in with a lecture I heard from Deepak Chopra some years ago. He was saying, if you're on a big dipper, there are those people who are going to be absolutely terrified, and they will generate a lot of cortisol in their blood because they're terrified and that will deplete the immune system however if somebody is just thrilled by it they absolutely love being on the big dipper that same experience will produce um much higher levels of um i think it's called immunoglobulin which boosts the immune system you know it attacks cancer cells so that same experience but the the different perceptions of it will determine the health of the cells and the, obviously the health of the body. So this, you know, this was absolutely paradigm shattering at the time. And, you know, he went through a massive change in life. And, and he said, your whole world can change depending on your perception. Your entire consciousness can change depending on your perception and your thoughts. And he saw the universe again as holistic. You know, the, the planets, the, the stars, the earth, us, plants, animals, everything was part of the same organism, the whole theory of Gaia. He suddenly saw it not in terms of pieces of old medicine, but in terms of a holographic whole, really, a sort of vibrating energy cosmos. And so really this, you know, if I look at my list, although there were many, many years apart, that was another step forward from, from supernature, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One, one of the things that struck me about that book was his chapters on par uh, parents as genetic engineers. That was definitely eye-opening. And it really made me think about what we do as parents, what we don't know we're doing as parents. Um, and he used to travel, I think, with Site K, um, I don't know if you know about Site K, but he used to show a video of um, uh, an ultrasound um, of a child uh, when the parents were arguing, a child in the womb, wow. and how that baby would react to the arguments. And he said, you know, it's right there, right? You know. So what we do even before our children are born, even what our grandparents do, 
I mean, you know, that's, that's a big one to think that we're expressing something, you know, a gene that has been manipulated by our parents and grandparents' perceptions. Absolutely. But what I found empowering about it was it brought in the element of choice. Yes. It's almost like Carl Gustav Jung's theory that it isn't what happens to you in life. It's how you react to what happens exactly. to you that determines everything, your, you know, your, your health, your life, your reality, your success, whatever. So it had echoes of, of Jung's theses in, in there, too. And it was very empowering. I, I loved it. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm reminded again, looking at your list, and we'll get to number three in a second. Uh, and this is number three is what's reminding me is, is this is like the perfect little leapfrogging. If somebody said, you know, I want to open up my mind, my consciousness, give me 10 books. I think I think you've nailed it. Because it's <laughs> this one, and then go over to that one and then to that one. And, you know, that's a there's great a progression. Course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a great a course. There's a logical progression because the third one and, and um, is The Field by Lynn McDaggart. Yes. Yeah. And I love Lynn's work. She was an investigative journalist, as, as you know. I love her writing because all of her books, although densely scientific and well-evidenced, read like um, detective stories. Yes. You can't wait to read the next chapter. And the subtitle of that book is The Quest for the Secret Force of the Universe. So here again, we have, you know, what, what constitutes reality? And she's so vigorous in her scientific approach, which is what I love. You know, it's very hard to challenge her information because she went to experts in their field all over the world, at universities, professors, etc. And she went to people who are really... Mm, investigating breakthrough work in their in their field and there's some great quotes in that book that human beings are, are living things that all coalescences of energy in a field of energy connected to every other thing in the world the pulsating energy field is the control engine of our being and our consciousness they, wow wow yeah. And she talks a lot in that book about the zero point field. It's a kind of shadow of the universe for all time, a mirror image and a record of everything that ever was. And one of her other wonderful parts of that book is that um, every living thing emits bioprotons, uh, biophotons bio rather, biophotons. And it's the biophotons, the light, which often we can see as a halo around somebody's head, it's that that transfer. It's those that transmit information within the body, you know, via every single cell, and also between organisms, between people. And the more coherent your energy, the higher your frequency, the brighter your light, as it were. And this becomes a really big thing right now, as the Earth is travelling through the photon belt. We're getting a lot more photonic light and energy in, and the question is, how much of that light can you hold in your body? And that's down to your level of consciousness and, and frequency. So she was really breaking new ground here. And, you know, one of her very simple ideas is thoughts create things. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I love her work, thoughts create things. So really, she was one of the first people, I think, to talk about this zero point field, which I guess we're now discovering is, is plasma, really, charged energy, which is invisible. But I, I, you could go back to that book even now, even though it was, what, 15, 20 years ago, and still you would learn so much from that, that book. I think it was, I think it was absolutely fabulous. 2003, yeah. Okay. Eight, what's that, 18 years ago? Yeah. yeah. 
Mm. It's interesting because I was reading from the biology of belief onwards. A lot of books came in very quick succession. I'd left my marriage. I was just devouring kind of deep stuff. I, I just couldn't get enough of it. And, and, and Lynn McTaggart is, is one of my real heroes with this because she writes so well. And she's, you know, what I like about Lynn's work is that, she, you know, her background, she's so rigorous in her research. She's credible. You know, this isn't woo-woo stuff. You can't pull it apart. Yeah. And that's that's exactly, what I love. That's, that's what we need. I love this this integration of science and spirituality because that's where we're headed. But she is, you know, you, you just can't find a pinhole in her in her evidence. And and that's what I love. And and really from there, from almost the theory, she went she went on to, to write the intention experiment to okay, how do we do that practically? What do, what do we do? to work with that zero point field. Yeah. And yeah. that was the next book on my list. Yes, and that was another um, great book um, and certainly, you know, a life-changing book. Um, I know that she went to Arizona. She worked with um, Gary Schwartz. She worked with a number of people and she spent some time with uh, Bill Tiller, who yes. was the first scientist to prove that he could, change the pH balance of water in a lab in Germany using thought while he was in his lab in Arizona and they had statistically significant results and Lynn you know Bill um, he tried very hard to break through I think what Lynn's done is she she has broken through with all this information yeah. you know um, and coming along a bit later I think we're more ready to hear it as well yeah 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 and, yeah. and, and she's you know, taken it a lot further and she's proving to people with her circles of eight that they can do it too yeah. absolutely and um you know she's really talking in this book about the power of using your thoughts to change your life and, and, and the world um and she talks a lot about reality is not fixed it's very fluid it's very malleable and hence it's open to influence it's like jello she said you know because we have this thing about the future is a film set and everything's rigid and, and, and it isn't it's just ether it's just plasma and the more we discover that the more empowered we can we can be in our, our choices. So, and again, she says in that book, thought is a thing that affects other things. You know, it's, it's beautifully said. So again, this was like a detective story. And um, she's, she gives lots of examples in the book, as you well know, Sandy, of, of um, you know, big, big experiments where she was asked to see if she could reduce violence in the Middle East during a warlike period. And she, again, she did it very scientifically with a, a control group as well. And she did get a, a dramatic reduction in violence in the Middle East simply through setting intention and using meditation. And I was um, I've done some intention work with her. And I remember it was quite a few years ago now. We were asked to um, help a chap um, somewhere in, I think it was California. He'd been um, uh, he'd been working in the army in um, Iraq. He was very sort of shot away, really. He had severe PTSD. He had panic attacks. He couldn't leave the house. He'd been in the house for two or three years. And what she wanted us to do was set a clear intention to give him peace and to bring down this this very high beta wave. And what she did, she we operated on a split screen because he had electrodes all over his head in California. 
and you would see very high beta being printed out on the screen. And she said, okay, meditators, just work, set the clear intention. You are going to bring Todd, that was his name, peace, and you are going to bring that high beta way down so he can feel peace again. And she said, every few minutes, you can just slightly open your eyes and see what's happening to his brain waves on the screen. And, you know, I mean, we were all over the world um, and I'm thousands of miles away. And within about two minutes, you just watch the drop in his brain, which, is, you know, I, I think barely come down in years down to, you know, alpha and really relaxed. And apparently he, he started to sleep really well after that. And you think, wow, you know, that's free, invisible, over thousands of miles. Look at the power of that. You know, so that really touched me deeply, how we could affect that individual's life for the greater good. You know, that was... There's, um, there's a little paradox there. How do you reconcile... I mean, my astrology teacher used to tell me the stars impel, they do not compel. You know, we have free will. It's up to us if we're going to... But if you're doing somebody's chart and you see that, you know, the, these aspects are going to occur and this is the likely likelihood, um, but they decide to think differently, they will change it. But that doesn't show up in the astrology. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that, um, Sandy, because something I've said consistently in my work and in my books is the birth chart gives you the pattern, the unique pattern for this lifetime. It's like a unique sheet of music for you. Never be repeated in history again. That's why everybody's special. But it does not determine how you play the music. That's down to our level of consciousness. We can play it on a rusty old box. We can play it with the London Philharmonic play it magnificently so it's that's where our free will and the latitude of choice comes in in terms of how we play the music so he didn't have to be so extremely stressed because again if we go back to what we've just been talking about with the other books if you apply this this feeling of empowerment to your experience you could look back on on that and say i haven't been a victim although those situations in iraq must have been horrific i survived it I'm a goddamn hero. I'm amazed. I've triumphed over that. And the, the facts and the experience stay the same, but you turn the whole meaning around. And then you're much less likely to suffer from the stress because you can pat yourself on the back and say, hey, I'm still here. I, I triumphed. You know, I, I, you know I, I, I can really look back and be proud of that element of my life because I believed I was fighting for freedom. We must have a whole different political you know, view about that now. But, you know, for the yeah. individual, that might have been very helpful. Yeah. And just by changing the thought and changing the attitude, then you're changing the chemistry. Totally. Totally. Mm -hmm. You change the meaning, you change the chemistry, you change the health, you change the experience. Yeah. That's where this stuff becomes so empowering. That's why I love it. Yeah. So we need to remember what powerful beings we are. Yeah. 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 I think we're just on the edge of discovering that, actually. I think so, too. Yeah. So book number five, another one that just, wow, turned things on its head. Molecules of Emotion, The Science Behind Mind-Body Medicine by Candice Pert, 1999. That was published. All at about the same time. She was a absolute powerhouse, this wonderful, brave lady. And uh, I think she might have even won a Nobel Prize for this work because, again, it was it was groundbreaking. She was a, 
uh, an exceptional um, molecular biologist, quite brilliant. And she really established a new science with this book of psychoneuroimmunology, you know, the linking of the mind and the body. And what she discovered is that every single emotion we feel, um, love, joy, compassion, hate, anger, jealousy, every very specific emotion has a very specific neuropeptide that goes goes with it, links with it, that our bodies produce if we're, you know, if we're feeling super, super angry, we will always produce this very specific neuropeptide. And she talks about cascades of neuropeptides, because what happens is we're totally unaware of it, but we become chemically addicted to that particular neuropeptide. And it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger in our system. So what may have occurred as one incident that made you angry at one point in your life? because you can't get over it. You just become an angrier, an angrier person because it's a chemical addiction. And so for her to see that from the point of view of biology was remarkable. And it was like she was really saying, the body is a printout of consciousness. The body is your unconscious mind written to medicine, as it were. And she coined a new phrase called the bio-mind, the bio-mind, where you know, mind and body are really one unit, which of course, which of course they are. And she wrote it as a thriller novel. I mean, it's quite small type and, you know, long. I, you know, I just couldn't put it down. I was absolutely exhilarated by it. And I think she discovered this when she'd had a riding accident and she, she was put on morphine in the hospital. And the morphine really helped ease her pain. As a microbiologist, she was saying, well, in order for this to ease my pain, I must have cell receptors to receive the morphine. Well, if I've got cell receptors in my body, that must mean my own body can produce um, morphine. So that means my body is a pharmacy. So that's a little fat chocolate. And you know, this is boom, 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 isn't it? Isn't it? So I, I adored that book, and it also suggested why sometimes we can be so it can be so hard for us to change, we can be so unconsciously resistant to change because it's actually a chemical addiction to the, to the negative thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the pharmacy and our thoughts are the pharmacist? Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you ever, when you come across a book like this that really impacts you, are you tempted to do that person's chart just to, you know, know more about them and how they came to be doing what they're doing? Yeah, sometimes, usually I don't know the data. And, mm. uh, you know, if they've passed on, which Candace Pert had by then, it would be even very yeah. hard to, to get the data. Um, oh, frankly, I'm, I'm so busy, I don't have time to fit any more in. But, yes, sometimes it does. But normally I don't have the, And the time, as we've said earlier, is so crucial yes. to get the exact chart. But, yeah, yeah that, was a, that was another paradigm. You know, whenever there's a paradigm-shifting book, I can. it's like I'm blowing fuses in my brain. I'm opening up something else that hasn't, hasn't been opened before you know wow you know that's another piece of the puzzle in this yeah yeah mm. number six breaking the habit of being yourself how to lose your mind and create a new one dr joe dispenza that's more recent 2012 yeah this was this was amazing i actually um listened to dr joe for the first time on what the bleak 
and I was just riveted. And I actually went on his very first workshop in London at Covent Garden. He had 20 people. And now, of course, he can get 2,000 people in an hour. You know, he's, yeah. he's become very well known. Um, but again, what I loved about his book was so often we get so stuck in life because of the neuropeptide addiction um, and because, therefore, it's, it's very hard to change and we've got to apply a lot of conscious thought to it. And you probably know the story. I'm sure, Sandy, if you've read the book, but he because he was quite an athlete. He was 23 in a triathlon, hit by a truck at 55 miles an hour, broke his spine, told he'd probably never walk again, certainly wouldn't be able to probably sit up again until they did major surgery with towel rails in his back and they replaced the towel rails every few years. And something in his brain... God knows he must have been in so much pain, said, not going to do this. I'm going to trust the universe that made me. And I'm going to use meditation, because he was a chiropractor then, to reform a perfect spine. And he got some friends to carry him out, face down on a stretcher in huge pain. And for 10 weeks, he brought himself back, brought himself, brought himself back to meditate on a perfect spine. 10 weeks later, he got up, walked back into his life no surgery, no pain, but he made a deal with whoever's running this show that if he got healed, he'd spend the rest of his life teaching other people how to get healed. He is a genius and he's now a neuroscientist and he talks a lot about neuroplasticity. Again, this idea of, you know, the malleable reality. And um, he really has shifted science. I mean, he's an absolute mystic. He'd hate to be called that. You know, he sees himself as a rigorous scientist, but He's shifting our view from the old Newtonian mind is separate from matter into this new quantum physics of our thoughts create our reality. And the whole idea that he's, he's proposing is you've got, to, you've got to go into deep meditation, step into a new energetic hologram. When you see it, when you believe it, you'll see it. Not, I'll see it when I, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, but the other way around. I'll see it when I believe it. So you step into that heightened energetic hologram with total conviction and gratitude that you are already there and high presto the universe then delivers. And what he's now doing in his meditations is putting, again, putting electrodes on his meditators' heads to measure the shift in brainwave during the meditation. Meditation has gone for four hours. I have witnessed many, many, dozens of miracles. I've been on 14 of his workshops all over the world and I have just blinked aghast. I cannot believe my eyes. The miracles that happen when very sick people, they might've been in a wheelchair for many years or they've got a genetic condition or a terminal condition, they just get fixed. Not, not necessarily in that one meditation they've been practicing for months, but the group energy. Yes, yeah, the collective energy. But a, a massive shifts for me then, massive. And what he also says, and this so aligns with my astrology, is everything in the universe is pure potential for us to tap into. And that's very much my view of astrology. And he, yeah, he, he I, I was just having very big jumps in reading this book, but also subsequently in, in attending the workshops as well. Yeah. Another one of his books is on your list, number seven, which is Becoming Supernatural, How Common yeah. People Are Doing the Uncommon. And this is where he really starts to show a lot of the, um, the brainwave scans that he's taken um, during the workshops as kind of 
you, you know, you can't challenge the truth of what these people experienced. And then he'll he'll explain the story about the, the health condition of that person and then subsequently how they got healed and, and how they are now. And the deeper they go in the meditation, the greater the potential healing they experience. So there he's giving kind of proof positive of, uh, you know, of what's happening again, very much as the scientist, but my goodness, also the mystic. And the higher we can go in our in our frequency to reach these higher dimensions, again, the, the greater the shift will be. And I just love his work because in the astrology, I'm starting to investigate these um, Kuiper belt objects, you know, beyond the orbits of Pluto, in this 5D quantum kind of energy. And that's what he's, he's teaching us to do. He's teaching us to reach those levels in the meditation so we don't have to go through the 3d slog of writing a business plan and you know go do a b c and d not just set, set a clear intention set your focus raise your frequency and bingo yeah he's yeah. teaching us that yeah and it works it really does work yeah number eight wholeness and the implicate order david bohm yeah, this kind of blew me away as well. Um, some of your listeners may know that David Bohm was a uh, senior lecturer in theoretical physics at London University, but he he had a very wide view of the world because he used to have quite well-known all-night conversations with Krishnamurti, the mystic, the Indian mystic. And some of them you can still find online, and I mean, it's quite poor filming quality, but they would just go on literally for hours and hours and hours about the nature of reality. And um, his work really ignited me and, and gave me some ideas for my very first book, because again, it was kind of blowing gaskets in my brain thinking, wow, because he, um, he again, he was trying to understand the nature of reality. And he saw, um, like Dr. Bruce Lipton, and I guess like Lynn McTaggart and, and, and Dr. Joe, the totality of existence as an unbroken whole. Um, as a hologram and um, in which we are all connected. And he talked about this universal order of undivided wholeness. And he said that what we think is empty space is actually an immense background of energy, which now I guess we, we'll call plasma, but he didn't have that term at that point. But he talked a lot about there's a deeper order of existence. It's a more fundamental level of reality from which our tangible reality is formed. And this is a quote, he said, there's an implicate order and there's an infinity of energy and this then unfolds to form time, space and matter. So, and I got very inspired because this is very aligned to Plato's theory of um, um, sort of divine intelligence, which then drops down into um, human consciousness, which then drops down via our individual consciousness into our individual individual realities. And so there's a much higher level of being of pure potentiality, which usually in our rough and tumble of day-to-day -day life, we're not aware of. But what he talked about in one particular idea to explain this, he said, it's like if you drop a, a, put a drop of ink in a jar of glycerin, and then you stir in that drop of ink. The drop of ink becomes invisible, but it's still there. It hasn't disappeared, but we can't perceive it in the kind of overall mass of our day-to-day -day life. 
And that's how astrology works, really. We go through, you know, the, the randomness that we just try and survive our days of paying the bills, putting food, you know, doing our job. But actually, there's a whole, there's pillars of meaning astrologically that underpin our reality that is at the heart of the bread and butter of what I do to, day to day. Because I can strip away the events of the life and say, these are the pillars of meaning that we're operating. Yeah. at that time in your life and so the perception of this higher or deeper order of existence apps you know i don't know where my head was at because <laughs> it was kind of way out there um and i was getting a lot of downloads and insights really for my first book a lot of my first book i think was inspired by by him mm. Interesting. I'm going to come back to that. I've got something to say about that, but we'll wait until we finish the other two books. So okay. number nine, The Holographic Universe, Michael Talbot, 1991. Yeah, yeah. and this was taking um, really David Bohm's work uh, another step further because he was, again, he was looking at the you know, a, a, a holographic universe as representing divine intelligence, and he was digging into it really um looking at um again how the paranormal and the and the supernatural was linking into science and trying to tie the two together and he really felt that we are on earth to go beyond the limits of 3d reality and ascend to high levels of being and um and he talks at the end of the book about returning to dream time like the Aboriginal prophecies of returning to dream time. And one of the dwarf planets that I'm, I'm looking at at the moment is called Altjira. And that is based on the Aboriginal myths and it's called the big dreaming. It's linked oh. to the big dreaming. And so, you know, again, this is quite beautiful because it takes us out to those, those higher realms of, of dream, imagine, envisage, and you'll pull it into your manifestation. So, I, you know, I absolutely love that book because it just took all of the thinking another step forwards. Mm. And then there's book number 10, which is completely different. It um, is. Oprah Winfrey said about this one that it's a reminder of what courage looks like in the worst of times and that we all have the ability to pay attention to what we've lost or to pay attention to what we still have. Um, I've never come across this book before, but having read a little bit about it, uh, now I'm going to read the book. So tell us about it. It's it the is choice, gripping. embrace the possible. It is absolutely gripping. And it seems uh, like it's a, a discontinuity from the others. But actually, when I explain a bit, I think it's kind of the cherry on top, as it were. Um, this is a, an autobiography by a, a wonderful lady called, she's now Dr. Edith Eager. I think she's in her 90s. And um, it's the true story of she was a Hungarian Jewess and she was kidnapped with the rest of her family and taken off to Auschwitz in 1944. She writes magnificently. I mean, you, I read that book in one sitting. You, can't, you know, there are no laughs in it. There's no tinkly bits. There's no light relief. It is grimmer than grim. And on day one in Auschwitz, both her parents were gassed. She and her sister Magda managed to survive through utter hell. And she describes a lot of the detail of, you know, and I won't go into that because it's just, you know, way too ghastly. And she ended up in Birkenhau and one of, was one of the very, very few people who survived. She was pulled out of a pile of dead bodies by a British soldier. Um, and then went on to become a psychotherapist. But 
the the positivity in that book. I mean, it, there's no moment of finger pointing or blame or how dare you or victimhood, not an ounce of it. Her resilience, her strength of spirit just radiates through. And it's really quite like um, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was deeply moved by that book, partly because in current times, it kind of echoed of what happens when a society, when, a, when an element of society is marginalised. Look how far it can go when a part of society is marginalised, when it's utterly unjust and utterly inhumane. I mean, that really, really touched me deeply. And, um, you know, I, I've got clients whose parents lived through something similar. But the positivity, the triumph of the human spirit, I think, is the cherry on the cake for me in this list. Because if she can endure that and still come out shining, boy, we must never moan for a moment. Not mm. for a moment. And I'm somebody who really tries very hard. And nobody has perfect lives, heaven knows. We all have our stresses and challenges, but I really try and walk my talk in trying to see everything in the most positive light, because heavens, I haven't been in that kind of hell. Most of us haven't. So we've just got to be so grateful for every moment of what we do have. And she really reminded me of that. I think she's the most magnificent character. Do you, um, does she give any uh, details about how she was able to do that? You know, she whether does. it was a struggle, whether she used any tools of any kind. She she does. And it was really, she, I think her sister was one of the, the, between them, they were each other's lifelines through that. I mean, if her sister had been killed, I think that would have been much more difficult. But she's written a sequel to the choice called The Gift. And there she's applying more of her psychotherapy tools, which really she learned in Auschwitz. Hmm. You know, so, wow, I mean, uh, that's really deep. That There's such incredible humanity in the, in the, the violence and the ghastliness and the death and the devastation. I, I just salute her. I mean, she's a rare human being, but we can all learn. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty amazing. And really, she's displaying everything that we've learned about in the previous books on your list. Exactly that. And again, I didn't really realise that when I was writing the list. But, but also, I read it very recently. I read it maybe about, um, six months ago. And, and you know, I'd like to read it again. It was profoundly... I think everybody should read that book. For, for mm. the times we are in, I think everybody should read that book. You see, I'd also want to look at her chart now. What is yeah. it that gave her that kind of resilience and strength, you know? Um, just to see where the planets are. Mm. Yeah. So, um, what are you reading now? Um, <laughs> and, and nothing at the moment. I'm not reading anything just because I've got such a tsunami of, of work coming in. I kind of, it's interesting, Sandy, I kind of feel there's something hanging in the air, some kind of insight or epiphany or something. It's just kind of hanging there that's going to land quite soon that may result in a third book. And I certainly don't want to promise that because, as you know, that's a very, very big project and I haven't got the space and time with everything else coming in at me. But I kind of feel it's it's imminent, and um, right. so I'm trying to create because you may know astrologically we've got this huge Jupiter-Neptune contraction coming up. It's exact on the 12th of April. It's building now. That's exactly on my sun that rules my ninth house of higher consciousness, writing and publishing. 
So I'm go. just waiting. It's like you don't have much choice. I am waiting for the magic <laughs> and the fairy dust. So tell me about your chart. I mean, did you, when you first started astrology, are you like most people when they start? The first chart they do is their own. Um, that's, that's, there's the proof right there. You know, you're either hooked or you're not. Um, that's certainly how it was for me. But um, when did you first do your own chart? What did you think about it? I was just absolutely blown away. I mean, you probably know that I emigrated to Toronto after university, joined a yoga class the first week. There was a big guy from Jamaica there. The girls at the end of the class said he's an astrologer. I knew, I went up to him and said, I know nothing, but would you do my chart for me? And I went to see him in his tiny flat in Toronto. Remember it like it was yesterday. And I spent seven hours with him. And he absolutely blew my world apart because he went back in my life as I do with clients and give dates and ages and said, you know, were you having this, this kind of experience then? He just blew, you know, how could a complete stranger who I had barely spoken to in the yoga, how could he know all this? You know, and I was kind of in shell shock for days and that started the whole journey of trying to understand, because that's how every astrologer starts, trying to understand their own charts. So I, I, I was self-taught for the first few years in Toronto. And then when I landed back in the UK, I went into very structured study um, for which I'm truly grateful because astrology is massively vast. I'm still learning after 47 years. I'm, you know, I'm still learning. So you will never get to the end of it. And that's one of the wonderful things about it. But yes, it is. You know, it's a bit like learning how to ski. You can have a good time right from day, you know, your first lesson going down the nursery slopes. And that's how I feel about astrology. It is just as joyful and profound day one to 47 years later. Yeah, yeah, constantly. But did you, I mean, did you look at the potential and have you lived all of that potential? No, I, I no there's more to come because of the Kuiper belt objects. I know that's the next level of study because that's our next level of consciousness. Otherwise we wouldn't have discovered them. And so these represent a combination of a deep shamanic connection to nature, which we've lost in our modern civilized, sophisticated world, but also this kind of Joe Dispenza um, and Limit Taggart kind of setting intention, focus, stepping into the new reality and manifesting. And that's what's so exciting. So I'm doing quite a bit of research on, on those at the moment and incorporating them into clients' charts. And that's adding a completely different dimension to who people are, you know, a much, a much higher level of being. Wow. That's and that's getting really, really exciting. Now you're going to get inundated. with <laughs> I'm not doing any client work anymore. So I've got a big notes on my website. No more I just... I just don't have the capacity I'm, I, unless I learn not to sleep. There's just no more time. But, you know, clients from the past, as it were, I'm still working through the backlog. So did you see at the very beginning that this was going to become your profession? Not at the beginning. I was just riveted by it. So every weekend, every evening, you know, I did a, sort of every um, summer. When, once I was back in the UK, um, the faculty held summer schools up at Oxford university and jesus college and i spent my time there which is an ancient place of ancient wisdom anyway and so i didn't at the beginning realize how big a deal it was going to become but i couldn't put it down it was just compulsive and you know over the years i've i've learned that i've done this 
more than once. This is not my first time yeah. as an astrologer. This goes way back. And I have a, a pretty good sense of who I was several thousand years ago. I've got a very good sense of who I was sort of 1500s. Um, uh, you know, I can be very specific about who I was then. Um, and uh, that's been pretty mind blowing. So I know uh, the dance goes on, you know, the pattern repeats. Mm. You know, every single guest on this show, um, it's an amazing, it's, it's one of the best shows I've ever done. I learned so much and it's so rewarding. Um, and But your list more than any and your description of the books and what they did for you really does seem to me to be the epitome of these books were your teachers, these books were your mentors, these yeah. books opened up the doorways in your mind all the way through and yeah. pushed you on your journey or at least gave you the path, laid the path out for you. Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel that, you know, in my bones. And the, the, the reason I love them, apart from the fact they were kind of blowing fuses in my mind was, I was weaving them in with the astrology. That's what I love because what I like to do with my astrology is, is weave in philosophy, weave in science, weave in you know, lots of other things that, you know, energy lines, um, lots of other things that I'm interested in, cosmology, what's happening to the Earth's magnetic shield, sun's magnetic shield. I love all that stuff because the astrology becomes validated but also richer as a result. And it's just all the stuff I'm interested in anyway. Um, and so, yeah, very necessary parts of the journey, I think. And it's very rewarding for someone who's been doing this for a long time to see how astrology today is being accepted in a way that it never has before. It's being taken much more seriously. It, and it people is. are beginning to understand this is a science. Yeah, and I think what's really important, and I've emphasised this a lot in my work, is we, you know, to some extent, people still think of it as as fated. You know, what are the plants going to do to me? Well, they're not going to do anything. You're co-creating with them, you know, and the better you understand them, the more you've got a language with which to co-create. They're just stepping stones for you. And once you understand even the basics of the language, um, that brings in a lot of your empowerment to start to use... Um, your chart strategically rather than just being the rubber hitting the road how can yeah, I yeah. use these energies strategically as I move through my life to have a more magnificent life and shine my light better in the world mm. it's that kind of a feeling we need to step into what a wonderful tall roadmap we've been given with astrology we have we are so uh, you know Sandy honestly I don't know what my life would have been if I hadn't stumbled across this I honestly don't because it's been so enriched in every moment. I mean, I haven't stopped learning since that first session with the Jamaican guy in Toronto in his tiny flat. You know, I haven't stopped. And what would my life have been? I think I'd have been much more lost, to be honest. But I've had this kind of framework and structure of meaning. I think the meaning of astrology is, is absolutely vital that it gives you it isn't just a collection of, of, of adjectives. It's, it's fundamental meaning of what your potential tapestry is in life. Now go weave the tapestry. And, um, yeah, I'm just so grateful that I, that I stumbled. But, you know, I'm sure that wasn't an accident either. I've done this before. I was meant to stumble across it. Of course you were. 
course yes. you were. And that little <laughs> girl at seven stealing that book from the library, she knew it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need this. <laughs> yes. Wasn't that weird? The weirdest thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the little time we've got left, I know everybody is panting uh, for the next bit. Uh, Pam, tell us, tell us, tell us. Um, February, we've got the Pluto return, exact conjunction, America's Pluto return. Um, going to be a big month? It's going to be a big two years, I think, for America, because it isn't just a low, it becomes exact in February, it's also exact in July and December, and it'll be operational not just this year, but also all next year as well. So it's in this second house of the of the country's chart, um, which is to do with the economy, but it's also to do with, because it's in Capricorn, to do with the constitution, the politics, maybe the legitimacy of the constitution, um, the geography of the US, what makes up, which states make up the US, because of course the, the US was coming together at that time, 1776. So it's gonna be a big, big spiritual rebirth for America. That the people decide. I want to say that very strongly. We are really moving away from top down being told what the what any country will be. It's going to be much more. Let the people decide what their values are, what their spiritual values are, what kind of what kind of country they want, what they stand for. Because I think that's been pretty rattled for various reasons over the last year. And what constitutes the economy? I mean, will money take a completely different form moving forwards? But for sure, it'll be more digital. Uranus in Taurus, digital um, Taurus money. So it, for sure, it will be more digital. But then we get into questions of, well, you know, things like Bitcoin were originally developed to be decentralized. But now governments across the world want it to be controlled by the central banks. So there's going to be that kind of centralized versus decentralized battle going on. And this year in general, globally, will be a much, much, much bigger year of change. The last two years were kind of stuck, contracted, dense, top-down rules, regulations for your own safety, don't move. This year is going to be very turbulent because things are going to be challenged in a bigger way. I mean, look at the Canadian truckers. I mean, that's phenomenal, that convoy right now. So there's much, much greater pushback of the regular people on the street like you and me pushing back against what seemed to be unjust uh, and draconian policies from government. So the top-down structures will be rattled to the core to produce a new society, ultimately, that will be grassroots up. People's councils, people's assemblies, little hubs of light that, that connect across the world to say, we want to live in freedom, we want to live in joy, we want to live in peace, we grow our own food, it'll be very simple. And there's a yearning for simplicity, a yearning to get away from the, the complex matrix of modern society. There's a deep yearning by many people. And so there will be a lot of breakdown in the, the old structures as we, and that will create huge turbulence. You know, will you get your rubbish collected, you know, da 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 da. But at the same time, we've got this crossover as the old collapses, the new is being born. And I think next year we will have a lot more signs of green shoots of the new being born that we can really focus on. Um, and then really getting into 2024, 2025, there are some beautiful aspects coming up, which are really to do with a whole renaissance in who we are as a culture, as a humanity, 
that are extremely rare for so many positive aspects of the outer planets to come together at the same time because those planets move so slowly it's very rare that they all kind of click in with positive aspects at the same time so i think getting into 2025 that could be a hugely positive time for us and there's always a lower expression of, of planetary um, aspects and a higher. So yes, you might look at Pluto moving into Aquarius and saying, well, that's controlled by technology. Well, yeah, that timeline will exist. If you focus on that, it's where you're headed. But if you don't want to be controlled by technology, choose a higher version of that, which is empowerment of freedom and human rights. Yes. So that's a higher expression of it. And that's where astrology becomes even more useful because you've got the vocabulary to say, what are the lower and higher expressions to make sure I'm I'm going to avoid the lower? Exactly. What, what's the best timeline I can live? Because we've got such an infinity of timelines. You know, where if you watch the mainstream news, you're you're kind of galvanised into think there's only one, and that's not true. There, there are multiple timelines, so we choose yeah. what we want to live, and that's where I think astrology is so empowering. So. As we move into even spring next year, I think things will get easier because Saturn moves out of Aquarius. Pretty much the day Saturn, limitation, moved into Aquarius, 22nd of March, 2020, Western countries went into lockdown. So Aquarius freedom, limitation on freedom. We went to lockdown. Saturn will stay there till March, 2023. Then it moves out of Aquarius. So there'll be a release of the constriction on freedom potentially and many other good things that start coming down the track so this year will be turbulent eventful chaotic it will probably be one of the most pivotal and dramatic years in recent times actually but we've got to go through that to get through the tipping point yeah 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 this year is the pivot point this year is the tipping point and stay positive stay focused only create don't give life support to what you don't want. Yeah, Only create. Mm. I remember reading a long time ago in one of Linda Goodman's books that America was created with the intention of giving us this wonderful model, you know, um, inclusion, all of the highest, highest, you know, ideals. And somewhere along the way, it lost its way. Do you, in this shift that America is likely to take, do you see that potential being fulfilled? Yes, I do. I mean, it's down to the people. It's down to yeah. us. But the more we can become conscious of that, we are so powerful as individuals. As you said earlier, Sandy, we don't realise how powerful we are. So once we realise as we come together in love and compassion and community, we can do whatever we, you know, we can we can create the world we want. And we've never had that because we've grown up in such a society where it's been so structured around us that we have authorities that we we must be obedient to. Um, that's good We have that at school, we have that with governments, etc. And this is a time of, of changing that, of saying I'm always going to act with love and compassion but actually this is not the way I want to live. And so therefore I'm going to create something beautiful with lots of other people who want to do the same. One thing that I'd like to ask you about is um, disclosure, uh, ET. Um, NASA recently announced that they had formed a little group of something like 20 um, 
counsellors, advisors from different religions to help them um, basically, you know, how should the message be couched for people so that they don't get upset? What is that group of people going to think? How do we talk to them? Which is tantamount to saying we're getting ready to tell everybody, yes, aliens do exist. Um, any thoughts on that? Any pointers? Well, sure. Uh, yeah, we are all made of stardust. You know, we've all come from outer galaxies, every single one of us, even Dr. You know, even Professor Brian Cox says that as a, as a cosmologist. So, you know, that's undeniable. We are not all just Earth based. We've come from somewhere else, all of us. So and, and, and you'll be aware of many, many people that, you know, and I know, I mean, Bracky Goldsmith, that channel galactic beings, channel the Palladians or the Syrians or the Andromedans or the Arcturians. This is becoming almost commonplace now. And I'm hearing from a lot of people who write to me that disclosure of, of galactic presence is imminent. Now, that is signaled this year by a much stronger Uranus. Last year, it was Saturn that had the, they're in a square, so that's a clash. So Saturn is, is government uh, rules, regulations, do as you're told. Uranus is the foreigner, the maverick, the galactic, the outsider. Uranus is much more prominent this year. And there are various peaks where Uranus really comes into focus. And at any one of those times, we could see galactics around us. I mean, I'm hearing from people I trust that they are, you know, they're just hovering right there and kind of pretty imminent. I've had no direct experience of that, but many people I know and trust and honor have had that experience. So how amazing would that be? How amazing. I mean, talking about blowing fuses, you know, mm -hmm. do, do we step into our galactic citizenry or remembrance at that point? I mean, wow. Bring yeah. it on. Bring it on. Bring it on. All for it. That's what we came here for, isn't it? The experience. Absolutely. And, and yeah. what a bigger perspective we would have on our, on our world at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Pam, um, we're almost out of time now. I know that you are a great advocate for uh, helping people to learn how to do astrology themselves. And I know that you uh, have a number of things available on your website. Would you tell us about them? Yes, I've got um, several teaching videos. It's on the products page of my website, pamgregory.com or thenextstep.uk.com on the products page. And you'll see them there. And the, the, the best one to start with to get a basic orientation in your chart is I've got a two part tutorial video series. And if you know nothing, if you're starting from zero, that's a really good one to start with. And then you can build um, with the other teaching videos from that point. But that starts people on the astrological journey. It's very simple, but it's incredibly comprehensive. I cover simply a lot of ground in those two videos. And so that will enable you to understand the meaning for your own life with every update I ever do. And boy, that will get you rolling. So that will be quite exciting for you. Yeah, and you can also do that for everyone else in your life. Indeed. And then encourage them to do it for themselves. Absolutely. A great believer in empowerment. Yes. Yeah. Pam Gregory, it's always a delight to talk with you. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It's been an absolute joy, Sandy. I've loved the conversation, actually. It's been really, Good. really, really joyful. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for adding your 10 best spiritual books to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's library of recommendations. And you can read Pam's monthly astrological updates on her website, pamgregory.com or the next step 
Next step or next steps? Nextstep.uk.com. Okay. And uh, I highly recommend you subscribe to her YouTube channel. Um, YouTube's going up all the time throughout the month. So, um, yeah, that's, I think it's on everybody's speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure then. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Thank you. Just carry on doing what you're doing. We love it. And as the spiritual book market becomes increasingly crowded, it's becoming more challenging to sort the wheat from the chaff. That's why we launched the No BS Spiritual Book Club, so that if you're looking for recommendations from authors, teachers, speakers, and others who've walked the path before you, you can go there and you can find out what books help them the most on their life journey. And, you know, there's a whole library full of them to read. So you can also go to the nobsspiritualbookclub.com where you can view previous episodes in this series and you can add your name to the Save My Space list to get last minute reminders of future live streaming episodes. And finally, if you have a book in you but don't know how to start getting it out of your head and into the hands of those who are waiting to read it, visit my website, sedgebeer.com, click on the Work With Me tab, find out how my experience helping others tell their stories might be what you've been looking for. That brings us to the end of this week's show. I'm Sandy Sedgebeer, and I'll be back again at the same time next week with another 10 Best Spiritual Books interview. Till then, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Pam Gregory. Thank you, Pam. Thank you so much.